I'm going to be in Luke chapter 18 today, verses 15 through 17. Um, I just go ahead and tell you now, just because it's a short passage doesn't mean there's not a lot to say about it. So just be ready. Um, it's just the way it is. I do want to start with a question, though. Let me just tell you, it's on 877 of the Bibles in the chairs. Uh, the YouVersion Live event's out there for you to follow along with. We will be working in the context, as is usual, and so it might be helpful for you to have it open. Um, but I want to start with a question. I think it's an important question. How do I inherit eternal life? How do I inherit eternal life? I don't think there's a, a more important question that we can seek to answer in, in our lives. I, in, in fact, the reality is that, well, let's just put it in terms of how we perceive things and prioritize things today. I, I, I don't think it's the question that's on the forefront of our mind at every moment in the midst of the daily circumstances that we deal with. I mean, let's just consider it for just a second. We're, 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 we're our... Um, probably less united as a nation than we have ever been. Right, we're called the United States, but that's probably in name only right now. We probably have not been more divided in our history than we are in, in, in today's time. We face nuclear war, right? There's the threat of nuclear war looming out there. There's, we, we just finished, we just came through one massive natural disaster, and now there's another one right on top of us, right? I mean, we are facing another, may, maybe as they're talking, this is potentially going to be even worse than the one we just watched as Houston was flooded. The, the damage that's done in Florida could be even worse. So I don't think when we wake up in the morning, the first thought in our mind or the most important pressing question that we feel is how do I inherit eternal life? I mean, I mean, just not to mention, I mean, these are big things, but just think just the daily pressures of life, being a spouse, going to work and being an employee, being a parent, just the everyday adulting that we have to do. We aren't looking up on YouTube, how, to, how do I inherit eternal life, right? We're like, how do I do this? We're learning all kinds of things from YouTube, but... And I don't know that I'd suggest you go learn from YouTube how to inherit eternal life. I probably shouldn't have brought that up. But it's probably not the thing we're searching for most. It's probably not the, the most pressing question, but I'm convinced that the, the text that we've been studying, the, the, the passages that we've been studying from Luke's gospel, leave no room to think that there is any other question or any other answer we should be seeking more then how do I inherit eternal life? If you were here last week, we began answering that from the parable that came in the passage just before it in verses 10, or I'm sorry, 9 through um, 14. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And, and there's a surprise ending where the Pharisee goes home unjustified or un, unrighteous, unwelcome in God's presence. And the Pharisee, or the, I'm sorry, the tax collector goes home justified, welcome to be with God. We began to answer this question, well, how do we inherit eternal life? Or how do we enter the kingdom of God? How do we become citizens of God's kingdom and live with him forever? And Jesus, over and over and over, sought to answer that question for us. In fact, it's such an important thing here that Luke doesn't leave us with this parable, but he adds two real-life examples First is one of children, and the next is of a rich young ruler who is so impressed by what Jesus has been teaching and, and saying that he actually asked the question, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? Or how do I inherit eternal life? So that's what we're going to really be spending our time on, at least for the next two weeks, potentially a little bit longer, um, and just see how that breaks out. But, but today we start with this first real-life episode, a, a real-life example of what Jesus had begun teaching through the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So let's read the text, and then we'll just work our way through it. It says this. It says in, in chapter 18, verse 15, Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to him, saying, But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We're going to stop right there, and we're just going to spend our time thinking through this. I want to set the stage for you just a bit, right? So, so that we have the context in our mind, so that we have the framework that surrounds this passage in our mind, so that we can really get to the main point of the passage, so that we don't read across the grain and, and start to b- develop our doctrines of, of, of children and heaven. And not that that would be a bad thing, but it's just not the main point of the passage, so here's the context. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's, he, he's, we, he started back in Luke chapter 9. At the end of chapter 9, he set his face to Jerusalem, and he's on his way there. And he saw it as so important. He, he knew what was waiting for him there. He knew that he was going to have to die. He knew that he was going to suffer and die and then rise. He knew those things were waiting for him in Jerusalem. But he saw it as so important that people understand why he was going there, that along the way he goes about preaching and teaching. And the text, if you go back and read through it, it tells us that he was teaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, the good news that Jesus was establishing a kingdom in which his justice or his righteousness would rule. There would be no opposition. There would be no no, no one rebelling against it. It'd be a world where sin did not exist and the fruit of sin was erased. And depending on on who he was speaking to, he would either encourage them to hang on, keep praying, keep persevering. You remember that lesson from last week or two weeks ago? Or he would warn them to get ready. He'd confront them in their sin, and he'd warn them to get ready. Now, just as an example, let me just play it out. So I I mentioned the passage from a couple of weeks ago. He tells a parable that that he commands his followers, that he expects his followers to pray and persevere, to to keep praying and not give up, that the kingdom is coming. This is really good news. It's kind of like that, that, it's, it's the idea like you're standing out in the sun on a hot summer day in line, waiting to get on the coolest, most amazing uh, roller coaster that's just been completed. Right? It's not so pleasant to stand in the line. It's not so great to stand there and wait and wait and wait. You've not, you, you can see it. You can see how fun it is. You, you even have the testimony of the people who built it. This, this, this is a roller coaster that can live up to your wildest imagination, your wildest expectation. And all you got to do is not give up. Don't get out of line. Don't turn around and go someplace else. When you climb onto this roller coaster, your wildest expectations, your deepest desires are going to be fulfilled. Maybe you don't like roller coasters. I do, so it's like I think heaven's going to be a big roller coaster, right? It's going to be amazing. 
That's good news for the followers of Jesus Christ. He's going to establish a kingdom where death is gone and sin is no more. Your desires to rebel and go your own way will be gone. Our desires to to be our own God and provide for ourselves and depend upon ourselves alone will be gone. Death, disease, destruction, and suffering will be gone. That is good news for the follower of Jesus Christ. But for those in the very next passage, for those that depended upon their own righteousness and looked down on others with contempt, you can see it right in the the passage that we studied last week. He confronted them and he warned them. But he didn't just do this simply so he could preach hellfire and brimstone and make it like... He, he, he was teaching them. He was showing them. He cared enough to enter in and, 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 and show them how desperately they needed to, to repent. How desperately they needed to believe and trust in Him. And so that they would know too how they could, how they could enter into, how they could inherit eternal life. This was the theme of, God, of his ministry from, from the time he began to the time he ended. And we've looked at it specifically. We've seen it over and over and over as he's moved from his ministry in Galilee to his ministry in Jerusalem. That's what Luke has been focusing on. And so we've seen this revolution or this revolving uh, door, if you will, of the same message being brought over and over again. And so it should be no surprise that when we come to this passage, Luke isn't giving us some brand new thing. He's just emphasizing what Jesus has just taught. But in the middle of all that he's doing, in the middle of everything that his, his ministry is, his teaching, he's working miracles, people are coming to him and, and, and seeking to see him and be with him. In the middle of all this, they even bring their babies. They're bringing their little kids, their, their, their little children, so that Jesus would touch them. They were hoping to have their kids blessed by him. Now, it might seem a little bit out of Character in, in some sense, because we have been looking at this for, for long enough now that we know that the, by and large the, the culture had begun to reject Jesus and seek to discredit Jesus and, and, and say that his power was from the devil and say that his, his teaching was, was lies and that he was blaspheming against God. They had begun to discredit him and begun to reject him. But I don't think it's surprising at all. In fact, we've kind of experienced this. Some, some of you that have been in Africa have, have experienced this. There's one, one village in particular, the, the most remote village we go to, there's one, one family compound. So, so it's like the whole village is there. I brought a picture of a compound so that you can kind of see how it's set up. There, there, there's, there's the village is set up and there's this gathering of huts. And inside the village is smaller compounds that, that are kind of lined with, with not fences like we picture fences, but maybe thatch or, or, uh, or cut down trees or even bamboo mats that have been woven together. And, and, and then the houses sit inside. And inside the 
the compound. The house is all face to center, so there's kind of this courtyard that we walk into and we teach the gospel and we tell Bible stories and fam- the family comes out and they sit around us and, and there's this one particular compound that we go into that I know every time we go into it, we're not leaving without having prayed for every baby that's there. This doesn't mean that they have left Islam to follow Jesus. In fact, I would suggest they haven't. This doesn't mean that they believe the gospel or the Bible story, not, not believe it in the sense of its saving power, but, but it, it's not that they agree with us about who Jesus is or that Jesus has died on the cross. It's not that they've abandoned any of their Islamic beliefs, but they see us as a people who are able to bring blessing upon them. And so it just so happened, and it was a one, one time in particular, it, was, it, it just seemed like we were sitting there, we told our stories, and, and, and as we finished our stories and had some time to discuss and interchange, then here comes mom with baby number one. And that was pretty neat, you know, pretty cool. We prayed for baby number one, and then there was somebody waiting with baby number two, and then three, and then four, and, and we sat there, and I, I, I literally began to think, what, are they going to get people to bring them here so we could pray for their babies? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining now that the women from across the village that are carrying little babies are, are being called to come to us because we prayed for so many, and, and the, the thing is, is that we didn't stop, we didn't say, no, 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 we're not praying for any more babies. We didn't shoo them away, we didn't we didn't tell them that we didn't want to bless them. Obviously, we're not, we're not Jesus. <laughs> we know that we're not him. But we're not chasing them off because in part we're seeking to live like him. Seeking to follow his example. But I think more than that, our prayer over them would, would, would be for blessing, but it, not just a physical blessing like we, we would pray things that, that definitely, yeah, yeah, make sure they have food to eat. Make sure that they're, they're healthy and they grow up strong. But our prayer would always call that God would bless them with the life that never ends. That he would, he would bless them with the joy that, that flows out of living and knowing him for eternity. That he would bless them with a spiritual life that could understand spiritual truth. That could trust in Jesus and follow him. That could repent of sin and, and, and respond in faith to the gospel. We would ask God to bring life to them. Because of passages just like this one. Because to such belong the kingdom of God. See, the world of Jesus' day overlooked kids. It's not that they would have been neglected. It's not that they wouldn't have been fed and taken care of. But children were infants and, and, and little children were second class citizens. One of the commentators I read from, his name's Joel Green. New International Commentary, New Testament. He points out that that their biggest fault or their biggest problem in that day was that they just weren't adults. They just weren't adults. And, and so because of that, they might be valued for some future, future produce, some future thing they can produce or some future thing that they can do. But intrinsically, at the, as they were then, as little children and infants, they didn't have just a large amount of intrinsic value. 
I think what Luke writes here, in fact, the way he even says it, they were even bringing infants. Emphasizes kind of the cultural perspective. It's surprising. Like, this is even the infants. It's like they were bringing everything out, even the kitchen sink. You know, like nothing was being overlooked. They were, it's, it's surprising. It's, it's not normal in, in their eyes. And, and then the way the disciples responded. They saw it and they rebuked them. They, they saw the parents trying to get their babies and their little children to Jesus. And they're like, what are you thinking? Leave him alone. They rebuked. That's a, that's a strong word. They corrected them with some level of, of, of a force. They rebuked them. It's, it's the idea is that these, these children, they're going to hinder Jesus' work. They're going to be a nuisance and make it difficult for Jesus to get done what he's come to do. They're going to interfere. And it's really funny because we see this, again, we see this, we see this here, but we see it in Africa too as we're praying for these children or, or these children are coming and just wanting to be near us. The adults sometimes will walk up and they'll, hacha, hacha! And they'll be like swatting at them, you know, and, 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 and scooting them or scurrying them away. Because they're concerned they'll be a hindrance to us or they'll be in some way a nuisance to the work that we've come to do. But Jesus, in one more surprising statement, to add to the long list of surprising statements, corrects his disciples and says, to such as these, to ones like these, He's not saying these specifically. Notice he's, he's, making an, he's drawing an analogy. He's drawing a, a comparison to ones such as these. Belongs the kingdom. It's ones like them. It's ones that have the same, same position as them. See, Jesus' disciples are trying to scurry the children away. They're trying to keep the children from hindering Jesus' work. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you're missing it. You're missing it. You're misunderstanding this. These are the ones, it's ones like them that I've come to serve and to save. Don't send them away. Bring them to me. Because it's ones like them that I came to give the kingdom to them so that they could live with me forever. Do not send them away. Let them come to me. This again, it's a common theme all the way across Jesus' ministry. This surprising, amazing, great reversal of the common view of the day. My, the children, they were, they, they were secondary. Why would we let them get in the way of what Jesus has come to do? And we saw it again just, just last week, the whole reversal that the, the tax collector, the lowest of the low, the scum of the earth was the one that was exalted to righteousness. And it was the Pharisee who was proud and self-righteous who was humiliated and shown to be not righteous. This great reversal Jesus has been working and demonstrating over and over. And here he does it again, but this time with children. And there's a lot of people that point out, well, the children are innocent, right? And and, and they can believe so easily. They just have this unconditional trust. And I, I'm not saying that we can't dig that out of there. I just don't know that that's really what he, I don't know that's really what Jesus is getting at. First off, if you've ever had a kid, you know they're not innocent. 
There's a reason we talk about terrible twos, right? I mean, I didn't, that's not just like one kid. That's common. In addition, the idea of these children, the words that Luke is using are for infants and little children. They're not making choices about believing. They're not actively, consciously trusting anything. They're just going along because they don't know any better. So I don't think that that's really what Jesus is infant or, 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 or emphasizing. I think what he's emphasizing are that infants and little children are defenseless. If you don't take care of them, if you leave them to themselves, they can't protect themselves. Put a kid in the woods, and he's likely not going to make it out. They're dependent. They are not producers. They're not contributors, right? The next time your baby wakes up in the middle of the night, ask it to feed itself. Probably not going to work. They're just another mouth to feed, right? It's not just another mouth to feed. Don't misunderstand what I'm... I'm just pressing the point that they are dependents. They are not producers. And the reality is they're powerless. They are defenseless and they're dependent and they are unable to change that. Can't do anything about it. Completely powerless to change it. And Jesus says, it's to such as these that the kingdom belongs. You see, when we put this all together, we begin to see it and see how it unfolds and, 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 and what he's getting at. I think it enables us to begin to develop the answer to the question. How do I inherit eternal life? All I can do is receive it. Eternal life is received as a gift from God, not achieved by skillful performance. And whether we like to think of it in these terms or not, whether, whether we like to consider ourselves in this light or not, it is a reality. And it may be one of the hardest lessons we can learn. It's likely a lesson we're going to have to learn over and over and over and over again. But we, apart from Christ, we are defenseless. We are dependent. We are the powerless. We cannot defend ourselves or protect ourselves in the scheme of eternal things. In the, in the history of redemption, in the scheme of eternity, we are defenseless. We have no defense intrinsic to us. We cannot defend ourselves against the enemy. When Paul talked about putting on the full spiritual armor so that we could stand he said, put on the full spiritual armor so that you can stand. Because you can't stand without it. We cannot defend ourselves against the works of the enemy apart from Christ. We are dependent. We have nothing to add to salvation. We, we can't bring something and add to it. We are powerless. We're incapable of changing our position. We cannot, by ourselves, work out our salvation. And Jesus' point here is that if anyone approaches in any other way, 
He cannot receive the kingdom of God. What that means is, is that he cannot be a citizen of God's kingdom and cannot live with Christ forever. He cannot inherit eternal life. You see, I think the reality is, is that we, we approach this question, how can I inherit eternal life? And we immediately begin to think about what we're supposed to do. Jesus has just flipped that on its head. There's nothing that you are capable of doing. There is nothing that you are able to do. But the good news is, you can receive what he has done. See, here's the reality. There's really just two, two religions in the world. Now, I know, I know, there's a lot of different isms. Like, there's, we've made all kinds of divisions, and there's all kinds of isms that people follow. But when you boil them all down, there's really just two. First is the, the religion of works. It's, it's focused on human achievement. The, the basic tenet of this religion is that you can be good enough to deserve the things you desire. Like, you, you can out... You can get to the scales of justice to be weighed in your favor, that you can do enough good works to outweigh your bad works so you actually deserve the things that you desire. And you don't deserve the bad things that happen to you. We hear it all the time. So we hear this being played out all across our culture. Anytime something bad happens, oh man, they just didn't deserve that. Why do good people suffer? Those are the questions driven by the idea that humans in some way have achieved goodness on their own. They're driven by the idea that in some way we can measure up and we can outweigh the bad that's been done by the good that we do. So that we actually deserve the things we desire. And second, the second basic religion in the world is the gospel. Just so you know, every ism, every world religion, other than the, the gospel that Jesus came preaching, fits in the religion of works and human achievement. Only Jesus came preaching the gospel, the good news of divine achievement, the good news of the work that he came and did. And the basic tenet here is that you and I do not deserve good at all. I think it was R.C. Sproul. It may not have been. I think it was, if, if it wasn't R.C. Sproul, it was somebody from Ligonier Ministries that said, um, that, that said, why do good people suffer? That only ever happened once. His name was Jesus. We shouldn't be asking why good people suffer, but why do bad people actually get good things? Like that's the right question to ask. We've flipped it upside down and Jesus is flipping it right side up and he's saying in his basic tenets that you and I do not deserve good, cannot do enough to earn good, but as an act of love and grace and mercy, God gives us good anyway, based not on our achievements, but solely completed and worked by him based completely upon his divine achievements. Now listen, there are ceremonies and rituals that both of these religions offer. Both cases, adherence to, the, to each particular religion, is we're going to work really hard because of what we believe. But the first, the, the religion of human achievement, is, is focused on the levels of achievement in contrast to failures. The, the hope is in the achievement that we can do. 
Well, the, in the second, the hope is in what God has done. What he's done on our behalf and what he's given to us. And as a result, we work really hard. Because we're so grateful. Because he, we see him as deserving worship and adoration. One is, is being saved unto good works and one is being saved by good works. And Jesus' point is that we must come to him open-handed, humble, powerless, defenseless, dependent. Or else we can't come to him. Maybe you don't like the idea of thinking of yourself as a child. I think it's a hard lesson for us to learn. I'm not saying that you're childish, right? That's not what Jesus called us to. He said childlike. Let me, let me illustrate this another way for you from the, from the scripture. Paul takes this. He understands this theme. And, and he paints this same picture with just different colors. In Ephesians 2, he begins, he opens the passage like this. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Okay, so you're not children. You're dead. Dead is dead. No life. No breath. No activity. No capability. Unable to do anything. Dead is dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. You skip down to verses 4 through 5. You can go back and read the whole thing. It plays out really beautifully. But I just, just want to emphasize this, skipping down to verses 4 and 5. But God, you were dead, verse 1, verses 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, there it is again, we were dead, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God's unmerited favor on you. God's unmerited gift towards you. You have been saved. We didn't come to life on our own. The first spiritual breath of life was not our doing, but God's. He was the one that put life where death was. Dead is dead. It doesn't change. There's no, there's no movement out of that unless something comes in and changes it. God changes it by his mercy, because of his love, by an act of grace. He put life where death was. This was his work and his alone. We had nothing to offer. And it goes on, verses 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One of the reasons I, I appreciate Ephesians so much and I go back to it so often is because it so, so clearly contrasts the work of God that leads to the work of his people. Chapters 1 through 3, there's not one command but over and over and over, it tells us what God is doing. Chapters 4 through 6 are command upon command upon command. But they're all in light of what God has already done. Now, the closest we get, the closest we get in this first half of the letter, in, in, in us doing anything in this whole thing, 
uh, this whole saving work is in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And somebody's going to come along and say, I got to believe. And because I believe, that got me saved. But in the very same breath that Paul says you have been saved by grace through faith, in the very same breath, Before it could even enter our minds, he says, this is not your doing. The very fact that you're sitting here believing is not because you figured it out and by your power and in your skill and in your knowledge and in your wit, you determined that you're a sinner who needs a savior. God woke you up and he gave you life so that you could believe. Your faith is a gift to you from God. This is not of us. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus so that we can begin to do good works. So that we can begin to live the Christian life. So that we can be be the people that God created us to be. He took us from being dead and made us alive. And He gifted us with grace and salvation and grace in faith. And so... I think I'd rather consider myself a child. I'm defenseless. I'm powerless. I'm completely dependent. I don't have anything to add to salvation. It's completely, solely, 100% the work of God. Eternal life is received as a gift from God, not achieved by our skillful performance. Nothing in my hands I bring. The old hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Nothing can I do. Nothing can we do but simply receive what's been done. Now, there are a lot of conclusions we can draw. There's a lot of things that we could apply this to in our, in our hearts and in our lives. And, and certainly, I would long for you to, I would encourage you to, to, to respond in gratitude. God has made you alive. That's worth being grateful for. Responding in worship and adoration, devotion of life, giving your whole life to living in response to this reality. That's absolutely there. That's absolutely worthwhile. But there's one thing I think that's clearly presented in this text. I think if we walk away from, we'll be remiss in missing. We we cannot walk away from this without seeing this. I would summarize, summarize it like this. Because eternal life is received as a gift and not achieved by skill, we strive to never hinder anyone from receiving it. What were the disciples doing? These are Jesus' people. Like, it'd be really easy to put ourselves up on a pedestal and say, man, look at those disciples. They were screwing up. They were hindering the very people, the very kind of people that Jesus has come to serve and to save. So there's no one, absolutely no one in this world that we should overlook. The self-righteous need to be confronted and warned. 
the broken and isolated, marginalized need to be ministered to and loved. Generally speaking, listen, generally speaking, we hinder the approach to Jesus when we don't live like followers of Jesus. Like when we step into the world and our motives and our practices and the things that we involve ourselves in are, are, are not in any way different than the world around us. We hinder people from hearing the gospel. We hinder the approach to Jesus by not telling the gospel, by simply going out and living a good life. Like we could go out and live this really good life and then, oh man, look at all the things I do. I go to church on Sunday and I go to Bible study on Wednesday night and I, 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 I'm, I'm serving in all of these things and I'm doing all of these good social acts. And then we never say anything about Jesus. We never preach the gospel at all. We never talk about why we're doing it. What do you think people are going to assume? Boy, that person really loves Jesus. If you never say his name, they probably never connect you with him. If you never talk about who you are apart from him, they will probably never attribute the work in your life to him. We hinder the approach to Jesus by not living like followers of Jesus, and we hinder the approach to Jesus by not telling the gospel of his kingdom to people who see us living like Jesus. But let's get a little more specific. Because that's what we do here. This is a parable, or not a parable, but this is a real life event about kids. We, we hinder our children for, from receiving eternal life by prioritize, prioritizing everything else over the gospel. Now, I hope this is not you. But if it is, I want you to think about this. We live in a culture that is so busy. We're always trying to figure out how we squeeze in things like prayer and Bible study and gospel living. Life among God's people, teaching of the gospel. Like, we're so busy. We're always trying to figure out ways to squeeze those things in. But I would contend that if this is the most important question that you could answer for yourself, it is the most important question you could provide for your children. And if your life is so full that you cannot prioritize the gospel, then you are hindering your family and your children from receiving the kingdom that Jesus came to give them. You see, he flips this on its head. Why is it that we don't prioritize the gospel and life in light of the gospel? And then if we have some spare time, start squeezing in those extracurriculars. I don't necessarily have a, an answer for you on that. But I love your children enough. I love the children in this church enough that I wanted you to, sit to go home and wrestle with that. And maybe you're sitting in here and you're not a parent and you think, well, I'm glad he didn't apply that to me. 
I don't want to leave you hanging. Who do you look on contempt with? Is it the homosexual person that lives down the street? The homeless person that they just get a job, they'd be able to be like everybody else. The person standing at at the intersection asking for your money, is that the person you look on contempt with? How about the person whose life is so sinful? You just, man, they just, they don't, they don't want the gospel. (laughs) There's no way they'd believe the gospel. Look at them. I mean, I know better. They, They wouldn't believe it. I wouldn't invite that person to church because, man, they're going to talk about sin there. And that might offend them. And I might lose the relationship. See, these are really all, all, all about our convenience. They're really all about not wanting, wanting to enter into the fray. Let's not be a nuisance to Jesus. Let's not disrupt his work by by letting those dirty people in. The defenseless, the dependent, and the powerless. Those dirty people that we can so easily look on contempt with. Look on with contempt. Those are the people that he came to seek and to save. And every time we make a decision for them that they don't want to hear the gospel or that they wouldn't respond to the gospel, we hinder them from receiving the kingdom that God has sent his son to provide. Eternal life is received as a gift from God, not achieved. And because it is, let's strive. Let us strive to be a people who bring Jesus, bring people to Jesus, that they can enjoy eternal life with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work in my heart. I know who I am apart from you. I've felt some of that even this week. Struggling with fears and anxieties. and Recognizing how powerless I am. Would you move on us, your people? that we would all fully see this, that we would understand it more clearly. And we would stand before you in this childlike approach that all we can do is receive. Would you confront us in our pride and our arrogance to think that in some way we have brought you some special thing by doing your work or by being who we are and now you finally saved the right person? Would you... Would you crush those thoughts in us. The arrogance and pride that that acts as if we deserve it, 
That we finally got what we deserved? Would you crush that in us? Father, move on us, your people. Convict us and confront us where we are hindering people from approaching you like we had to approach you. Defenseless, dependent, and powerless. And if there is any here today, Father, that have never surrendered and never approached you in this way, would you bring this life to their heart? Would you help them to see themselves in, in the light of a child, in the lightness to a child? And help them to plead with you. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, a bunch of sinners. Father, we need you. Jesus, thank you that you've provided that need. Spirit, will you now open our eyes to the reality of it? I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.